Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking and not talking about it. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mariana Ease Hegler. In this episode, we are going to dig into the importance of local news and local news reporters to the greater media landscape and ecosystem. That's right. And our guest is not a local reporter, but he is someone who makes us think he's a local reporter every time he writes a story about a community. <laughs> I know. It fooled the fuck out of me. It's Drew Costley. He is the environment, science, and tech guy at One Zero. And he's written some of our favorite stories in the last year that kind of hit at this intersection of environmental justice, climate change, and all of the other things happening in the world. Yeah, exactly. He really like has a talent for getting his tentacles into a community and digging yeah. deep and not just looking at the, the surface level. So yeah, when I wanted to talk about local news, I was like, I want to have Drew on to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, totally, totally. And also, Drew is the first black man we've had on Hot Take. So, <laughs> air horn. That says more about the, the lack of climate journalists of color and especially black climate journalists mm -hmm. and black men climate journalists than it does yeah. about us. But also, hey, look hey. at us. Got one yeah, on. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, if you want links to the articles that we talk about here, you should subscribe to our newsletter. If you want some amazing premium content, you can subscribe for just $7 a month. We also have a free version if $7 a month is too much right now, and we totally get that. There will be more details in the show notes on how to find it, but that gets you at least one feature and our Digest of Climate stories every week. 1,000%. Yeah. All right. Now it is time to talk about climate. Drew Costley, welcome to Hot Take. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. So how did you get into journalism and specifically into climate journalism? Yeah. So I've been doing journalism. I'm in my like almost mid thirties and I've been doing journalism since I was in high school. Um, it was actually an, mm. Eng an English teacher. I was talking a lot in their class and, and they suggested that I join the school newspaper since they seemed like I like talking to people, <laughs> which was like, which was like, you know, the, 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 the early two thousands version of like shade. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and I joined the school newspaper and I got to write about sports that I was really into sports as a teenager and as a kid. And I just have been doing journalism pretty much ever since I took like a, a break from 20, from 2008 to 2011. And, and that's around when I got into science journalism, I got bored of sports in my like early to mid 20s and then and and sort of disaffected from journalism the 2008 recession happened and journalism was it was like a miniature version of what's been happening this year with the journalism industry mm -hmm. with local newspapers folding and stuff like that um yeah mm -hmm. and i stopped doing journalism and then um the internet got really good around then like where there was just a lot of information, especially a lot of information on science. And I just, there was something, I was like in the science as a kid and that was just never really fed that much, you know, by like my elders mm. for, for whatever mm. reason. And I don't want to like ascribe reasons to it or pathologize it, but like it just, I just around 2008, nine, 10, I just rekindled the love with, of that I had as a kid of like science and learning about new things all the time, like in like complex concepts and like translating them to people and like broadening people's understanding as well as my own. And 
and then there were sort of new new forms of journalism like podcasts like mm-hmm. radio lab and stuff like that that just sort of called me back into the craft and then i said okay well if i'm going to come back to journalism I, I think i'll be a science journalist and mm-hmm. in an environment and climate journalist i i think i had like these latent you know i was i was raised in northern virginia where we have we learned we've been learning about climate and we've been learning about environment in our actual science curriculum since like the early 90s and oh, like wow. yeah and like I went and did some reporting for my school newspaper you know in the in the mid 2000s on Katrina recovery and uh-huh. and those were sort of like the sort of latent seeds that led me to actually specifically want to report on like environmental justice and climate mhm mhm yeah wow that's fascinating. That is that's super interesting. Also, I love that you got funneled into journalism because you like to like to talk to people. Because I always right. like, I, I people always ask me if I um if I like wrote a lot as a kid, like if I had a journal or whatever. And I'm like, no, I just really liked talking to people. <laughs> that's really yeah. funny because people always uh, they recommended journalism to me because I like to write. Yeah. Um, and it, like mm-hmm. I tried journalism and I hated it. I was terrible at it. It was like, I have to go talk to these people. This is terrible. <laughs> I mean, I will, like, s- I'd rather just- <laughs> I will say that like one of the hardest parts of journalism still to this day for me is like cold calling people or like walking up to yes. people mm-hmm. that I don't know already and trying to talk to them. I hate it. Yeah. I hate yeah. it too. Still. I'm the same. Yeah. I hate that part, like the approach, but I, I still really love talking to people, especially who don't often get asked about themselves. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, know. totally. Anyway, okay. So if you could change one thing or maybe let's say one to three things about the way <laughs> that we talk about climate in the mainstream discourse or in mainstream media, what would it be? Right. So this is an interesting time to ask a question like that because I think a lot is changing about how we are mm-hmm. talking about climate. So if yeah. this were like even before June and May in the up, you know, with the uprisings, um, yeah. if it were before then, I would say I think that we should talk more about like inequities and we should talk more about, mm-hmm. you know, cumulative impact and things that that have been made sort of bare by the pandemic and by, you know, these uprisings and and mm-hmm. sort of the right people being in the right place at the right time to talk about environmental justice and environmental racism and and climate justice and stuff like that. And so I would say we should talk more about inequities. Um, when we talk about Mm -hmm. climate, I think we should talk more about people. Um, Mm -hmm. we also, we often talk about loss of property and land and landscape Mm -hmm. and like, and we talk about wildlife a lot when we talk about climate or we talk about the environment. But we don't, I feel like we don't talk about people enough in the lived experiences around climate change because um, they already, there's already a deep well of lived experiences around what's already happened because of climate change. So, right. so those are the, those are two of the things. And then the third thing I would change is in that this is already changing too, I think, because we, it's becoming unavoidable how immediate climate change is and that it's already happening. But that I, I really think the balance of conversations around projections versus things that are already happened needs to be, um, needs to be weighed a little more heavily and things that have already happened or things that are happening. Like I still think we focus on projections too much and they're abstract mm-hmm. and people don't under, people can't connect with them. People don't like, I yeah. don't, 
I don't know what I'm going to eat for lunch tomorrow. I don't, I don't eat for <laughs> dinner. I don't even know if, what I'm going to eat for dinner tonight. I can't connect with the projection about my, <laughs> my appetite tonight, let alone like in 2050, <laughs> you know, like in yeah. 2050, I don't, I don't know the hell I'm going to be in 2050. You know, I want to, I want to have kids. I don't know if I have kids in 2050. You know, yeah, and so right. it's like we need to stop focusing. I mean, it, it, but it's good for science. It's good for understanding. And there, I think, are obviously phases in terms of like how we prepare and what we report on in terms of stuff, and stuff like that. And we just need to stop. We need. I think we need to, like, especially the larger newspapers and magazines and blah blah blah. They need to focus more on shit that's already happening because there's a yeah. lot that's already happening right now. And yeah. it's, and I think people have more of an emotional and heart connection to it that will like make them more likely to do something. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And talking about it in terms of projections really just makes it feel like it's far away. And, it's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a comforting thought, but it's not the truth. So I feel like you kind of touched on this already, but are there any interesting emerging themes that you've noticed in the ways we talk about climate change recently? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that, yeah, we're talking more about inequities that are based off of identity and class and ability yeah i do think we are talking more about people like there are more mm-hmm. i'm not the only one doing environmental justice reporting obviously like there's yesenia funes and darna nor um mm-hmm. and and, the, and and even like the larger publications are starting to do environmental justice reporting which is like ultimately good i was telling somebody the other day that like i don't report on this stuff just to create entertainment or something like i mm-hmm. want these things to change and so mm-hmm. these larger publications reporting on this type of stuff, um, I think, might lead to more change. Yeah. And then and then also, I think the rise of just from like a media standpoint, the rise of like using interactives in multimedia mm-hmm. to tell this story. Mm-hmm. That's probably also something that I think should change and is starting to change. Mm-hmm. We had like the ProPublica New York Times thing that, yeah. again, focused on projections, focused on the huge, huge big picture. Um <laughs> with climate migration but yeah but also get you know it's a different way of of interacting with the issue um so those are those are interesting themes for Mm -hmm. sure yeah yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering as someone who focuses on environmental justice, do you get pigeonholed as like a, you know, what's that word they use, Amy? Oh, an activist or like yeah, an, an advocacy activist. journalist or, or right. something like that. Yes. Right. No. I mean, so this is really interesting for me because like I said, I, I've been doing journalism since the early 2000s, actually, mm-hmm. which is such a long time now. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I was raised in like the traditional journalism sort of school. I'm actually kind of more of an old school journalist. So it's really interesting Mm -hmm. that I'm coming in environmental justice reporting, like from that angle. So no, at this school, like, like, okay. So, okay. So the way that these values would actually collide is like old school reporting is like, try to be objective, try to be neutral, dispassionate and like strive Mm -hmm. for that. Even if you know that it's impossible like the audience knows objectivity is impossible you know objectivity is impossible your editors do too and like you're pretending still like it is and like in your work product Mm -hmm. you have to and that was even like up until i mean there's still newsrooms that that practice that sort of ethos when it comes to neutrality objectivity and all that and in environmental justice as a concept is just runs completely counter to that. It assumes that there are um, 
that there are different perspectives and identities and experience or there are different like perspectives and experiences that happen around the environment mm-hmm. and how we yeah how we actually engage with the environment based off of our identities right and based off mm-hmm. our ability and so like so those two things run really counter to each other right so mm-hmm. like if i'm going to report on environmental justice or as like some of the bigger newspapers are starting to hire for like larger for for inequities reporters positions or inequalities reporters position you're like mm-hmm. all automatically assuming that you as a reporter going in with an understanding of your perspective on the world and like your framework you know the ideal pure pure journalism would be operating with absolutely no framework which is problematic mm-hmm. in itself but like right, so right, right. so they so they run counter to each other so like no i haven't like specifically been told that i was an advocacy journalist or or an activist yet i mean people do question like my reporting based off maybe how i look um, yeah. or the subject matter and how I'm portraying it, um, and assume that I'm not operating a good faith, but no, not really. I, but I, I mean, I could see people doing it and honestly, like, yeah, there's a difference. Like if they're, you know, if, if I was reporting on an environmental justice organization and they had like impropriety going on, like I would report on that too. Like it's mm-hmm. about, yeah, you know, like, yeah, pe- yeah like it's it, 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 like even, even like courts reporters don't just report on the cops. I mean, they might report on cops mm-hmm. and crimes too much in trials, but some of them will report on like j- judges being like corrupt and shit like that. So like mm-hmm. I, and so like for me, I, even though I do understand that these inequities exist and that people are doing like things to try to alleviate the issue, like, you know, accountability isn't, isn't just a one-way street, you know, like we need to have accountability in these, in these movements too. So I, I don't see myself as an activist or advocacy person. If you wanted to be quote unquote objective about it, like the science and facts back up the fact that like, you know, black folks are experiencing like asthma in some parts of the country at like two to four times the rate as white people. Like that's just facts. So yeah. Like, Yeah, I prepared it thinking you were like a through and through Californian, but now I know that you're like originally from the DMV and have lived in California for like three years. Yeah, so it's all about weed, um, but that also works because that is now legal in DC too. I don't know about Virginia, but close enough. <laughs> so, Drew, what do you call a cup of coffee with CBD in it? <laughs> I don't know. Danka. <laughs> <laughs> is this is this lightning round just mary getting off like puns yes yes yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all of it uh what do you call a stoner with two spliffs uh double fisting i don't know <laughs> you're close you're so close okay fine double jointed <laughs> oh, oh lord oh my god I didn't know that Mary was a dad. Oh, really? Oh, that shows how often you listen to the show, Drew. I do this every single episode, and Amy has just begrudgingly gotten dragged along. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) 
before we get into the main topic of this week's episode, I have to ask, how are y'all doing as Californians and people who live in California? Yeah, I thanks for asking. I think right now the air is clear in Oakland. Clear here too, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think it might still be poor air quality in the Central Valley or parts of the Central Valley. I know, like, for example, like when I moved out here, I did not realize how many ecological disasters were happening here. <laughs> I mm. think on a regular basis or could happen. Welcome, like, Drew. California Welcome. is literally, an, is like literally could be an adventure movie. I, I think when these moments happen and they've happened literally every year since I've moved out here, like how the pandemic had everybody sheltering in place, like mm-hmm. Californians were sheltering in place because of the smoke since at least 2017. Every yeah. well, skip skip twenty nineteen. It didn't happen in twenty nineteen, gratefully. But in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen, there were at least I think I know in twenty seventeen there was like it was like a few days and the smoke wasn't that bad. But in twenty eighteen, it was like five or six days in the Bay Area yeah. where you just were locked inside. I don't know. I mean, at this point, I'm like I, I'm always so I come out a little, always a little like rattled and like I think probably like heightened anxiety from it. Um, mm-hmm. I. I'm concerned for folks like it's really ugly out here. Um, a lot of people are suffering and that, yeah, that is, yeah. And, 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 and I, and I might be one of them depending on like, I have respiratory issues. And so the, the smoke is really a no, no for me, but like I have, you know, relative privilege, class privilege that allows me to have some protection for some of these environmental ills. Um, yeah. And, and other folks don't have it so good. And so I don't know. I, I'm like, I'm like rattled. I feel rattled right now. I feel worried about other folks. I'm like worried about the fire season is that was the beginning of the fire season. Actually. I know. That's the part that really <laughs> yeah. freaks me out. Like the Thomas fire happened in December. Yeah. And like, exactly. Remind really... us about the Thomas fire. That was that, the one that, that was the last biggest fire in was, California. Was right? that the one that was that the one that threatened Ellen and them's homes? The one that yes, was the Santa Barbara is. area. Yeah, it was Ellen like Santa Barbara, Oprah's Ventura homes. County, and like Northern yeah. LA. It just was huge. It was the last biggest California fire, and now it's right. been surpassed by like two more this season. So that's yeah. that's how that's how I'm doing. I'm like rattled, worried. Yeah. Yeah. At the moment, my my health is fine. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, at least like my 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 physical health is fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just really worried about a lot of folks. Yeah. Because yeah. um, yeah. when I think about the orange skies that we saw over San Francisco and Oakland, like I've I've visited there, <laughs> and you can't spend like two seconds in that area without seeing the housing crisis and the gentrification crisis yes. and just like. What happens to people who can't shelter in place because they have no shelter? Yeah, right. a lot of people like that. Right. Yeah, yeah. My that's been my big fear is yeah that this is like this is the beginning of fire season and um, mm-hmm. there's just more heat waves predicted. Like everybody's sort of right now bracing for what could happen on like Monday, Tuesday this coming week because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be high winds and heat waves and mm-hmm. like. We're still not on top of the existing fires. And and you know what else, too, I, I was thinking about was like, you know, there's more and more of these planned outages, which is another thing that I feel like people have just sort of like 
mm-hmm. gotten used to as like a new part of life. And it's like completely fucking bonkers insane that like the, mm-hmm. the utility is like, yeah, you're not going to have power for like who knows how long. I honestly, right. I honestly don't even think it's a part that people have gotten used to. It feels like it's a thing that people just aren't even able to focus on because there's so many other things. There's so many other things. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I, when people talk about everything that's happening out here, I, they always forget about the PG and E blackouts. So like yeah. I was, I was like, I went to Berkeley's J school and then I ended up teaching. I'm teaching there now. I've been teaching there. This is my second year teaching there since I graduated. And like, I, in the last class, we think I'm thinking about I've thought about their their last semester of school because there's so much packed into it that was not school related that was outside of school and and then I think about their last year as a total and I'm like wow they had the pandemic they had at the end they had these this these of these racial uprisings um and and just really covered the colored their experience and then I think about the fact that in the fall they had PG and E shutouts but we always forget about that. Like yeah. in the past year, like there would be these these rolling blackouts. They give you some amount of heads up, but it's not that much. And you know, mm-hmm. if you have like a medical condition that requires mm-hmm. a device that plugs in, for example, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, oh god, what are people doing? Um, yeah. And then that on top of the pandemic and everything else is just. What happens when you eat marijuana? depends on how you've processed it. <laughs> it's, it's you, gotta, you gotta think like a pun. You gotta think like a pun. Um, you digest we digest uh, digest we <laughs> You get a pot belly, Drew. <laughs> That's so dumb. That's so dumb. It's actually true. That is also true, though. Yeah. That is also, true. Yeah, what well, can be true. It's true. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna um, come back to the wildfires in like more more detail. But the main reason we wanted to have you on the show, Drew, um, was because we wanted to talk about the the death of local news, and we thought you'd be a great person to have on the show because you're not a local news reporter. You report all over the country, but mm-hmm. you do it in a way that like I was confused. Like I didn't know where you lived. Um, I was like, yes. oh, clearly he lives in New Orleans. No, he lives in Ohio. No, like no, where is this dude? Like Carmen San Diego? Like where is he? Nice. Ooh, um, <laughs> that is, that's a high compliment. As like somebody, it is like, a high compliment. Grew yeah. up idealizing Carmen San Diego and like where's Waldo? Wait, Really? I'm like <laughs> I love I loved I loved Carmen San Diego and where's Waldo, so I'm like I'm feeling this, thank you. That's awesome. <laughs> no, but like your your stories were so deeply reported in mm-hmm. these very disparate places that I just assumed like only a local reporter could do that. Mm-hmm. Um so I I mean that was just something that really stuck out to me. But mm-hmm. another, th- like, we're concerned about the fall of local journalism because mm-hmm. it is it is really problematic for a million reasons. So mm-hmm. just, like, lay out the landscape. Since 
the fall of 2018, communities have had their newspapers in 2004, now have no original reporting whatsoever in print or digitally, has grown to 1,800 from 1,300. <laughs> News deserts are becoming more and more common, especially in Black communities, especially in Brown communities, mm -hmm. and especially in rural communities. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to read from this piece that came out in The Atlantic in 2019 um, called Local News is Dying and Americans Have No Idea. The newspaper industry has been in tailspin since internet companies ate the five billion in classified advertising they'd been raking in, and social media became an alternative entry point to the day's news. Worse, the solution that saved the New York Times, high-margin digital subscriptions, has not yet proved itself for smaller papers. Just 14% of Pew's survey respondents said they had paid for local news in some way in the past year. 49% of the people who didn't pay cited the widespread availability of free content as their reason why, according to Pew. Local radio, a few stations accepted, has been cannibalized by digital on-demand offerings. Free subscription alternatives, new alternative news weeklies, which often provided a substantial counterbalance to establishment papers, but never had a paying subscriber base to rely on, started losing business to Craigslist decades ago and never really recovered. Many have received their eulogies. Others are attenuated and anemic. And what's happening to TV news is even scarier. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Like uh, John Stewart had a segment about how they've been bought up by this company called Sinclair Broadcasting Group, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is like hella right wing. Yeah. Um, I, am I allowed to use that word, Amy? Oh. Yes, it's fine. We'll allow, it. we'll allow we'll it. We'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really right wing and really scary like i remember um in 2017 they had them read all this creepy statement about yes. like, fake news remember yes this? i do remember this it was so gross yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah and they're they're like steady buying up local news stations and mm -hmm. taking them over it's bad it's bad news yeah. bad news yeah. that's a pun <laughs> I, it was, it's fine it's fine Amy I'll let you have it uh, <laughs> she hated on the dad just and now she wants to get on the train and stuff it's true, yeah, it's work true. Harder. trying to write them yeah <laughs> but no Drew it sounds like your whole roots are in you know local journalism and yeah what, what do you think about this yeah I mean I think like yeah for sure I think so the even the career path of a journalist has been radically yeah. altered by by not just this year um but really the last i would say even since the early 80s is what i've mm -hmm. learned from like my elders in the industry mm -hmm. around like when this sort of consolidation and gutting and buyouts and layoffs started and really it was to improve the bottom line at the time of these companies that were privately held and so they didn't have to report like their earnings and things like that. So they would just like basically lie and say that they were in dire, more dire straits financially in the 80s and 90s than they actually were just so that they could improve their profits. That's like literally mm -hmm. what happened with the Baltimore Sun. And so this issue goes back really far and it has been happening like it's been sort of the specter of this slash like it this actually happening has been sort of a backdrop of like probably my whole career as a journalist it, the old career path for tv news for radio and for newspapers 
was to work in smaller markets and to work your way up. And those yeah. smaller markets have just been the ones that have been completely decimated by mm-hmm. this, this sort of the, this, the demise of local news. Um, so I, I was planning on like maybe working in a small market, mid-major market, and then working up to being like being able to move back home or something, right? And work for the post or work for something like a larger publication. But those sort of that, those rungs of the ladder have been sort of like eliminated. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so I ran the, I ran the school newspaper at Howard. That was a local community. And we also did like local reporting in DC too, in the area where Howard was. And then um, for our metro section and then, and yeah, and then I worked in, in Northern Virginia at a small weekly newspaper, like a, a free weekly called the Falls Church News Press. And then that was only local reporting there. So yeah, I, that's like my roots, my background and, and, and really like this understanding of the importance of it, how like communities become informed, how they share information, how they learn information. It's been really important. The sort of gutting of, of local news has been, you know, just, it's supremely detrimental, you know. Um, they used to be used to, used to have like a lot of local papers would have two two reporters covering the courts, right? Somebody would take an AM shift and they would come and write in the PM on what happened in the AM, and then there'd be a PM reporter who would report in the PM, and then in the AM they would file a story about what happened the day before. Mm-hmm. And that that hasn't existed since in a lot of local newspapers since the nineties, right? And that's like thirty mm-hmm. years ago. So like. This erosion in local news is, isn't really new. It has had these inflection points, like in 2008, was an inf- in, in 2009 was an inflection point when a lot of uh, publications, you know, closed, collapsed or, or had huge layoffs and buyouts. Um, and then this year has just been, yeah, it's been brutal. It's been really yeah. brutal to see. Yeah. And it's not just it's not just local news at this point. It's like huge yeah. magazines, yeah. online publications. A lot of people are laying folks off. And mm-hmm. and yeah, and the, the net result is that, they, yeah, there's less information going into the community. And so the community is less informed about things that are happening in their own community. So they, it's almost like their consent and their agreements are sort of lessened because they are they're coming into it with less information. So they're less well yeah. informed. It's not, it's not really, it's not really like people can't make consensual decisions without information. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's there's the no such result. thing as, yeah, there's no such thing as uninformed consent. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. How do fish get stoned? Through their gills. Through their... I'm like so bad right now at puns. I don't know why. Um, probably because I have a regular coffee instead of a red eye. Um, <laughs> or a danka. Or a danka. Uh, I don't know. Tell me. Amy, you want to help him? How do fish get stoned? I don't know. I'm bad at these too. Um... From seaweed. Oh, oh, it was right there. All right, all right. Uh, we should have known. Through their, okay. through their Gil, Gil Scott heroines. Oh, no, that's not stoned. That since, is different. Since weed is a gateway drug. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. You know, 
what does this mean for climate? Because I know, like, I've mm-hmm. spent a lot of time looking at sort of the long, like, the you know, last hundred years of of news and PR and all that stuff. And it's like, in a lot of ways, um, the whole fossil fuel industry's kind of PR apparatus was was built in response to investigative journalism, and mm-hmm. and and they've spent just a ton of time and money and. And resources in general on trying to neutralize the power of that information. You know? mm-hmm. So, so anyway, um, I'm, I'm going to read this this excerpt from a story that ran in uh, the Columbia Journalism Review a while back about sort of what happens in, especially frontline oil and gas communities when there's no paper left. It's it's called a pipeline runs through southern news deserts. And this was by Lindsay Gilpin. All three states crossed by the Atlantic Coast Pipeline have a dearth of local newspapers, according to the UNC report. West Virginia has three counties without a newspaper. Virginia has seven. And about half of the 25 counties along the Atlantic Coast Pipeline route, print news comprises a single weekly paper. Several weekly or daily papers cover more than one county. The counties along the route are some of the most rural and economically depressed parts of the U.S. in a region that is historically reliant on extractive fossil fuels. In North Carolina, seven of the eight counties the proposed pipeline would run through are predominantly black. These places lack consistent, informative local coverage of energy, justice, and the environment because of the declining number and resources of print news outlets shifting the balance of news sources toward expanding corporate media monopolies. The areas are also overlooked by national media, which mostly parachute in to cover major updates or catastrophes, or if they need a tie-in to President Trump's policies, a dynamic that can perpetuate inaccurate stereotypes about these places. Yes, all of that. (laughs) It's really, it's so problematic. It's really problematic. I am part of the problem because I, I covered this. Damn you, Drew. We covered this. I mean, you know, I mean, there's like, that's the thing is like, yeah, I mean, I covered the, 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 um, the Atlantic coast pipeline, um, when they announced that that project was, was shuttering when they closed that project. And that was, Mm -hmm. that was the, you know, that's an example of like, I mean, one zero is national media, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I didn't parachute in just because it was COVID times, but I mean, I digitally parachuted in. I had a digital parachute. It was called my, it was called my my cell phone. (laughs) And, um, and, and yeah, I know, dude. Yes. This is, this is the pro, this is the problem. I, I also am a, I'm a journalism educator and I taught, mm-hmm. we have a summer course. Like I said before, I'm a journalism educator and, and we had the summer course at, at Cal on environmental reporting. And I, we had like 30 students or so this, this time around. And I was just like, Hey guys, we need you. If you have genuine interest in this, we really need you because there's yeah. so mm-hmm. much shit going on in these places. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. These places can be staffed with people who have the skills to to do the type of information gathering dissemination that is needed right now in mm-hmm. these communities. Even like thinking about when I reported on the ACP, thinking about the lack of network between the the people who were in the coalition, like like actual mm-hmm. like they knew of each other, but they they weren't mm-hmm. like connected. And I wonder if I'm the first reporter that's connected all of them 
you know, yeah. like in yeah. a story or something like that. And I'm probably not. That's probably, again, my dumb ego. But like, I'm just thinking <laughs> about like, I'm just, yeah, like I'm just thinking about how little reporting it is like in these places. Like another example is is, is Richmond, California out here. There's, you know, um, mm-hmm. there was, there, there are, there were two small community newspapers um, in Richmond that closed the Richmond Post. Well, no, Richmond Post, I think, is still going. It's a black paper. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other Richmond. I can't remember the name. That one shuttered, and there wasn't a paper. In Richmond, The like Chevron actually created its own <laughs> newspaper. I was just going to say, but there's still the Chevron paper in Richmond. Yeah, they created... <laughs> okay, they, they I need more information. So they literally filled a vacuum. Like the, there was a news desert in, in Richmond, yes. and they filled it with... Chevron filled it with the Richmond Standard and it's a it's a newspaper yeah. that is sponsored by Chevron and it like and it's run by a PR firm that is like yeah. dirty as hell and just it's so gross holy yeah. shit I did not know anything about this yes. they're really going there with the company town shit aren't they they really are yeah. right well this wow. is nothing new right like this isn't anything yeah. mm-hmm. new you know and I mean like I think it's important to be able to be extremely passionate and dispassionate and if you think about mm-hmm. like how communities build themselves like company town isn't really necessarily a bad thing like it's like right people go find resources and then they create community around those resources that's like well, super it, old yeah. school but and the company yeah. like should be supporting things in the community or, you know? or at like, least or at least like consensual like consensual agree like agreement around right. like how to like share those resources and like how right. to distribute them but like but like yeah the the problem what makes it problematic is like the fact that like they're polluting the shit out of Richmond and they're pu- polluting yeah. they're they're polluting communities of color and poor communities there and mm-hmm. um and that same information isn't getting out you know um yeah on a regular basis I mean I cover Richmond too I cover Richmond regularly I cover I actually a lot of my stories originate in the Bay Area if you actually go look at mm-hmm. my sourcing like probably yeah. the majority yeah. of them are in the Bay because there's one a lot of stuff going on here and two. It's where I'm at. So, um, yeah. so yeah. So, yeah. so like, you know, that's another, Richmond is another example of this in, and, and in the yeah. Chevron plant there is, is, is polluting. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's put tens of thousands of people endangered in 2012 with the Chevron yeah. fire. I think it was like 80,000 people went to the hospital for, for some, for like various things related to that. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to push on this idea, Drew, you're part of the problem for quote swooping <laughs> in because I'm just kidding. Well, I, I don't I'm think just you kidding. are. Because, I'm just kidding. Well, I, I do think it's something to be interrogated though, because I'm the part of I other problems, not that one. <laughs> but I, I do want to make clear that, like, what we're saying here is not that national reporters shouldn't cover local issues, too. But right. that you need the local reporters there, one, for the national reporters to, like, come in and, like, get the lay of the land and talk to. And, like, right. local yeah. reporters are just going to know. That, yeah, becomes, exactly. that needs to be worked out better, too, though, because what happened, like, I I firmly believe that, like, there just needs to be better actual collaboration between national outlets and local outlets or local Mm. reporters. And the way it's been done in the past is that national outlets basically swoop in and act like they're doing you this big fucking favor when really they're just extracting shit from you. Mm -hmm. Um, Exactly. Exactly. But that's, that's a really good lead into a piece that I wanted to read from in the Atlantic called an old to the local newspaper. Mm. Local reporters don't get to leave the scene of the tragedy. 
it's where they live. What they do matters to their community and local journalists know it in their bones. It's what makes their work worth doing. Local journalists and their newspapers play a special role. They help define a community's character and identity. Coverage in their pages confers status, recognition. Absence from their pages also sends a painful message that the lives of some people don't matter. And while their front pages may be what people remember most, the value of what's called agate type, the small type that lists the times of runners in a race or winners in a contest at a local fair, or the list of all the graduates of a high school shouldn't be underestimated. Wow, that's the that's the first time that I've seen the word agate since I was an intern at USA Today <laughs> in 2007. That just makes me feel so. Mm, that's such a that's such a nerd journalism nerd word. Agate. It is a yeah, very yeah. big nerd word. Yes. Well, tell me what it means because agate yeah, type agate agate type is just like the little like if you go to the sports page and you see just like the you see like the stats basically. It's like it's basically stats mm-hmm. when something big is happening. Like you needed national reporters to swoop in for Hurricane Katrina, for example, Mm -hmm. right? Because that is how you make it a big enough of a story that people are aware of it, that you can draw connections to things that are happening on the other side of the country. But they could not have told that story well without the local journalists. And a lot of them didn't talk to the local journalists and covered it very, very poorly, right? right? Like the people who covered Katrina the best were the people at the Times-Picayune and other local outlets, Right. right? So like... You're saying like it's an ecosystem and we need all parts of it in order to to function properly as the fourth estate. Right. I think the Times picking in was like when Katrina happened, Times picking was like it was a couple of years before the Times bought the Times picking in, like and it became mm-hmm. part of the New York mm-hmm. Times Corporation. And I think a lot I of did these, not know like, that happened. And so I think well I, and I think they might have sold them off since then too, and then yeah. they closed and now they're part yeah. of the advocate. But like, yeah. but like, yeah. but um, but what was what when 2008 hit, a lot of the larger media companies were trying to create their own. They they were trying to create the ecosystem as sort of like a um, like a ground up, like where they have the big national publication, like the New York Times has mm-hmm. or USA Today with USA Today, and then they had the smaller publications, and then they yeah. bring and then they and they there. So they were trying to create that ecosystem in their own way. But I think that has its own problems too, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, but it, but yeah. So there, but it's, but the thing is, that sometimes the ecosystem doesn't exist. Like when I'm, like when some of these stories that I've worked on in in the past year of working for One Zero, I it's been like I'm calling and they're the, I'm the first person that's called them in five years about this thing. Wow. It's like why. Why? And then I go back and I look and there's been some iterative reporting um, um, by by local publications as much as possible. But then there's other developments that happen that aren't reported on just because it's a capacity issue. Mm-hmm. you know in some of these in some of these communities um and in some of them that yeah it's just that no one's called them and no one called no one's called them in like 10 years five ten years yeah. about yeah about it about an issue that's going on in their community and and continues to do like continues to like like for example in detroit they have the marathon refinery and that's that has mm-hmm. not gone away in, in southwest detroit and yeah and 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 i i come along and, I, and i'm like i talk to people and they're like yeah no no one's called us since since what's his name um homie from um jay inslee and so since jay inslee came in town no one's called us <laughs> right 
Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, like the immediate assumption is that, oh, the media just doesn't care about this story, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, it's it's really more of a capacity. I mean, sometimes, yes, that's true. But I just think the capacity issue is such a big problem. Mm. Well, also what Mm -hmm. happens, I think, a lot in the Internet is that like your... Per, like your perspective is so broad like i think a lot of people yeah. have a lot of breadth in the internet like a lot of individual people have breadth but they don't have depth mm-hmm. and yeah and i'm not talking about media i'm talking about critics of the media and a lot mm-hmm. of times people will be coming to an issue for themselves for the first or second time and actually yeah. the the like they'll be like like our favorite thing in the media is when someone's like why don't you guys cover this and you can just throw them a link of the last story you wrote on it they, <laughs> when, they, when, when they weren't paying attention right. um, yeah. exactly and, exactly and so that happens a lot too but yeah but yeah yeah That really, I think, encapsulates this need for local news and climate is the California wildfire story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really gets into knowing a community and not, not just California at this point, right? Like it's Oregon, I believe Washington. I think some of them are even in Canada at this point. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just mm-hmm. like the Western half of the continent being on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are yeah. actually way more evacuations in Oregon, but I feel like it got talked about a lot less than mm-hmm. California. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, the, yeah. The, and, the, the air pollution was worse for longer. Yeah. 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 And in Oregon, the, the prisons actually got evacuated, which... I've oh, been God. searching and I still haven't found an instance of prisons being evacuated in California. It's so gross. Um, but yeah, we wanted um, to get you to read from a piece that you wrote, Drew. Mm-hmm. California is on fire and choking out its most vulnerable. And you wrote it August 27th. That was the case in 2017, which was a historic fire season, the most destructive on record at the time. The 2018 fire season was also historic. It's the planet 2017's as the most destructive and also became the most deadly on record. That year, Mask Oakland distributed over 85,000 masks throughout the Bay Area, according to the group's website. Then 2019 was relatively mild in terms of wildfires, according to the California State Fire Agency, Cal Fire. But this is 2020 and a variety of ecological crises that climate scientists and environmentalists have warned us about for decades are intersecting and adding up. The pandemic is hitting on top of air pollution, hazardous waste, hurricanes, flooding, and wildfires. In California, wildfire season has only just begun, and the state is already on track to break the 2018 record for acres burned, over 1.6 million as publication, which is like, I it's think, over... It's blown past that by it's now. Over, yeah. I think it's like over 3 million the last time I yeah. checked. Wow. Um, yeah, it is. The wildfires burning throughout California have spread smoke throughout the West, creating unhealthy air quality in places like Idaho and Colorado. And at this point, it's reached all the way out to the east coast it's adding to the poor air quality in poor communities and communities of color the latter of which disproportionately bear the brunt of pollution air pollution created by white americans and exposure to wildfire smoke like exposure to tear gas can trigger physiological responses that can spread deadly diseases redwoods who's a trans disability activist 
uh, says a lot of mm-hmm. the clientele they distribute uh, masks to already have heart and lung problems that are linked to the types of pollution that are ubiquitous mm-hmm. in their communities, like car and diesel truck emissions or emissions or water contamination from industrial sites. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think like this year has been a lot of stories of like the pandemic plus this and this is not this isn't any different. But I actually um, connected with when with when Jasmine Red was the trans disability activist back in 2017 during the North Bay wildfires. When I was working for a local publication, a hyper local newspaper called Oakland North that despite its geographic designation covers like all of Oakland and it runs out of the UC <laughs> Berkeley graduate school of journalism. Hmm. Oh, that's and, cool. And yeah, I mean, I think like that was, that was the big question, you know? Um, and I woke up, I remember in 2017 and my, we'd actually, we didn't have AC in my place. And so we had the windows open the night that the North Bay fires like blew up in 2017 mm-hmm. and so the smoke it was all in our room when we oh, woke up man. and i was just like panicking and then i was like and once we like closed the windows and i like calmed down i like mm-hmm. i was like wait what's up with the homeless folks yo like yeah how they yeah. what's gonna happen to them and so there were other people thinking about that like activists and a few other journalists but i think that actually now that i'm thinking about it the only publications that covered efforts to help the homeless community in the wildfires in 2017 were hyper local ones so there was uh, yeah. there was Oakland North the one that I reported on I report I was reporting for there's this publication called Hoodline that covers Oakland and San Francisco mm-hmm. and it's a hyper local publication um, and um, and I think there may have been one more but maybe not I think there might have been just us two at the time mm-hmm. and so yeah it just highlights the importance of like like our experiences as people are local right like yes. are like, yeah. like I'm not like I don't wake up in the morning and think about like what's happening in every single like bed in America I think about what's happening <laughs> in my bed like am, yeah. I, am I actually awake <laughs> am I on the bed and, and our physical environments are, are very can, can be very local or tend to be and so like environmental reporting i think it makes the most sense like thinking about our physical environments like should also be very local um yeah and and it's not and the and the result is is all these people's health like we the result is 2020 (laughs) the result is the pandemic the result is black latinx and indigenous folks dying of covid at two to four times the rate of white people that's i mean i don't i think that that stat has changed uh, over time mm-hmm. at, as as levels have even died i think it's actually closer like two to 2.5 times for indigenous mm-hmm. and black folks but i but that's the result of still no more. local reporting yeah it's still twice the times and so that's the rep- that's the result of no local reporting on what the hell's mm-hmm. happening with the air quality in west oakland or what's happening with the air quality in richmond you know or what's happening right. with the water quality in navajo nation like there's no oh, when yeah. there's no local reporting on that and those, those things will get fixed but also we're like not reporting on like on the environmental conditions that are happening before the effects of climate change take yes. place and so people are just yeah. drop people and so 200,000 people drop dead most of it like and, and disproportionately they're black and latinx and indigenous yeah. and like white folks are like why did that happen yeah, mm-hmm. and P O C and P and B I P O C and elders in these communities have said we've been fucking telling you this for forty years. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. what that's what's it happening. reminds me. Yeah, it reminds me of when we um when the pandemic was first kicking off in the United States and we had Samantha Montano, um, mm. our favorite disasterologist on the show, and we, <laughs> we were like, We're scared. We don't know what to do. And um she, we were like, So what's your advice for people? And she's like, Pay attention to your local news. And in the back of my head, I'm like, What if you ain't got none though? Like, you know what I mean? Like when, when shit is real, right? There's a hurricane barreling on you, a wildfire. Like you need to know what moves to make right now. Right. And nobody at the New York Times is going to be able to tell you that. Right. Like you got to be able to rely on your local news. Um, and it also kind of reminds me of like, you know, at the beginning of the protests in like late May, early June, um, I live in New York. I need to know what is happening. Right. Like, are the police being crazy outside? Like, if I walk outside, am I going to get like hit with a rubber bullet? What's happening? Um, And I couldn't know that by reading the New York Times Mm -hmm. um, because they weren't covering it properly. And also, they don't really see themselves as a local newspaper that much. Right. So, like, I had to look at Twitter. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. That's the thing is, like, when we talk about local news, like, let's I mean, let's be real. Like, the newspaper is 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 like pretty much a white Anglo-Saxon invention, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. when we talk about local news, we should talk about local news and information, right? Because, like, yo, like, our grandmas are not on Twitter. If our grandma, both my grandmas are dead, but, like, if, like, Mm -hmm. our our elders are not on Twitter and somehow they keep getting information to each other about what the hell's going on in their their communities. Um, Somehow, Mm -hmm. I think, I think, I think the fact that they live on, like, they, they 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 go and sit out on their porches and talk to each other every day <laughs> like it's probably mm-hmm. a, a re- it's probably a good reason or something like that you know like i i mm-hmm. and then like and then also in the digital era with like younger folks like i mean like yeah twitter is a great source of information also like tiktok's a great source of information like mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I mean especially with younger folks like especially media they're like i'm so impressed and they make my job easier is these younger climate and environmental justice activists that are hella media savvy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, great. Like you're media savvy. Give me some quotes. You know, you know what, you know, you know the deal. And, and like, there's one person I remember giving updates from Mount Ikea last year. Um, there was one young, one, one young person. And it's just like that, you know, like that's, that's not a newspaper, but that's information, you know, that's valuable. Mm -hmm. So and I do. Do you feel, Drew, like um, like there's been a little bit of a um, shifting around like sourcing rules as far as that goes too? Like I feel like more people are actually like finding those activists and talking to them because of digital and social tools now than than maybe they would have like ten years ago. Yeah, I think it's probably easier for some people who to who normally wouldn't be near those sources. Yeah. Um, to be to have access to them or to know that they exist. I think that there are like younger folks who look at activists differently and value their work differently. So they report on them differently and they yeah. and so they value mm-hmm. them as sources differently. So for me, yeah. like and, and actually that's actually as a result of like you could probably make a case for like calling like Aaron Brockovich, like the first citizen scientist or something like that, or like somebody right. who did it before, like some of these people actually are experts like in the shit that's going on because they've had to yeah. develop expertise, you know, um, over time. And even if they don't have a PhD to their name. Um, so mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. I think, I just think that younger folks value the work of activism differently, I think. Yeah. And so, and so, so younger journalists prioritize it differently in their work. I know I do. 
Um, yeah. I know I yeah. like value. They're the people who usually like have a lot of information and like, yeah, mm-hmm. they, they might, you know, they, they obviously have a very obvious bias that might color their tactics or strategy or how they view themselves in their work and like, but like done. so do CEOs and so exactly. Yeah, but I feel like exactly. bias one hundred percent. Yeah, bias is just a shitty word for perspective. Why did the stoner plant Cheerios in the ground? <laughs> because they're bad. They're bad munchies. <laughs> he thought they were bagel seeds. That is like a full dad joke. Okay, we're almost to the end. We're almost to the end. Why did the stoner cross the street? Because there's a dispensary on the other side. Boom! Look at it! Yes, well done. How do y'all think the West Coast media sources did with covering the wildfires recently? The actual like West Coast based ones? I mean, I thought yeah. like I thought the LA Times did a fucking great job, but everybody was like, "Oh, none of the big papers are covering fire." I'm right? Like, yes, you mean like none of the East Coast papers, but like the well, LA Times is pretty on it. Well, that's yeah. the thing. And the San that's, Francisco that's, Chronicle. But mm-hmm. people also people that's also people's understanding of the media is is being yeah. colored by how consolidated and nationalized it's become over the past 40 yeah. 50 years yeah. um mm-hmm. because when they think of the media they don't think about their local news sources or whether whether or not they even have one they think about msnbc right. cnn fox new york times yeah. Washington post when they say that that's what they're saying they're not yeah. saying they're, they're and they may be saying their local news broadcasts like their local tv news broadcasts but they're not they're not talking about their local papers, their their yeah. their, pub, their their radio pod, their radio broadcast. But I would also say that the LA Times is a major fucking paper, and so right, yeah, it's totally. like the San Francisco Chronicle. So like I don't even yeah. I saw a lot of people um, who worked at the LA Times like super pissed on Twitter, being like, "Hey, right here, we're covering it." Right. I also want to mm. give like a quick shout out to the LA Times because they're one of the very few, or the actually the only major paper I've seen with a climate section that is easily accessible mm-hmm. from its main page. Like it's on the very top of the masthead. Also just like shout out to them for hiring Sammy Roth, who was a fucking awesome local reporter out in like uh, mm. the Palm Springs desert area forever. I used to read that guy's mm-hmm. stuff all the time. Cause he was so good on, on a lot of the big mm-hmm. energy projects that were happening out in the desert. And like, yeah, I feel like that that paper has done a pretty good job of sort of finding um, local talent in other places and like yes. bringing them on yes. in a way that that lets them yeah. still report on those places too. You know, um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sam is great, and I think like yeah, I think that the Times and the Chronicle both at this point have good infrastructures in place for reporting on wildfires. I know I re- I was at the, I was at like, so SFK is a subsidiary of the Chronicle. And so I was, so I was at the Chronicle, the path, like, the, like during 2017 and, and 2018 and saw them build their infrastructure for like tracking wildfires and things like that. And they, they have, yeah, they're, they're doing, they're doing, I think as good of a job as they can. And it's, it's a pretty good one. And also like, 
Yeah, they these these are these are newspapers who are dealing with like extreme like very diminished staffs. Um mm-hmm. uh and when we and now we're seeing that like having one wildfire reporter might not be enough. You like you have a wildfire reporter right. and it might not be enough. You might need two wildfire reporters. Um Yeah, you might need an inferno desk. Right, exactly. You might need a a, a wildfire desk um or something yeah. like that. Um just because like if you think about the lightning complex fire that happened out here in the bay, it was like the East Bay, but it was in multiple cities. And then there was like another lightning complex fire that was in the South Bay. And then there was one in the North Bay. And it's like so you see and like you only have one reporter to cover these three wildfires that are happening all at the same time. It's like yeah. these these papers are pulling pulling reporters off of other desks to cover to cover these wildfires. So it's it's like so I would say they're probably they're likely overwhelmed and they there's there's probably need we probably need more resources i wouldn't say in like big cities like la and the bay but more so like in the mid-sized cities in california or like in the central valley Mm -hmm. fresno area they have the fresno b but there's like a lot of communities up and down the central valley that like just don't have enough reporting what it seems like we're really talking about here is east coast media bias which mm-hmm. I know Amy has a million thoughts on. So I'm just going <laughs> to let her go. Oh, man. Um, well, <laughs> I was just, you know, I, I complain about the East Coast media thing a lot. But, no, but I, not a lot. But I do, I do feel like, um, you know, as the fires got bigger and bigger, kind of everyone's covering it. There was this huge response to this op-ed that Charlie Warzel wrote in the New York Times that was basically, I didn't really understand until I moved west. <laughs> and, hmm. and I was like, geez, even when one of these, I don't know, big boy papers is like <laughs> doing a story on this stuff, it, it's in this way that sort of... It like, still why, centers the East. Yeah, I'm like, why do we need to hear from like the New York media guy who, you know, moved to Montana two years ago and now understands fire? How do you Just, not understand fire, though? Like, I don't understand that. At all? No, no. A lot of people. I didn't. I didn't get it. Like, I didn't get. I. I. Fire is actually very complex. One. Yeah. And two, I didn't understand that. Like, as as simple as it sounds, I did not understand that. Like, a fire in like near Sacramento, like with the the Paradise Fire in twenty eighteen, yeah. could mm-hmm. like completely engulf the region I live in, which is like driving wise, it's, I think like about two hours away. Yeah. In smoke, in smoke for days yeah. and that it would linger. I did not get that. I'm, I'm sorry. I, and that's I mean, the part. I actually really think that's the part that people don't get is, is actually not the fire part. It's the smoke part. And the fact that it lasts for so long, you know, cause sometimes, sometimes people will say like, Oh, but hurricane recovery lasts a long time. And then I'll tell them that like, any recovery lasts a long time. Yeah, exactly. But then I'll say like, oh, that you know, we ha- we've had smoke for six weeks, and they're like, what? <laughs> like, right. I don't know. That, I think this is where like you can tell I'm country. You know, <laughs> like fire scares the shit out of me, right? Like I know that like back home people like burn their garbage, yeah. um, right? And yeah, that can sure. easily turn into a fire. But like Mississippi's like swampy. Is like not nearly as dry as mm. California, right? right? So like, mm. I'm scared of the fire catching, but it, it that doesn't really happen back home. Mm. But I look at California, especially the first time I went to California, and I'm just looking around, seeing like 
you know, matchsticks in the woods. <laughs> the whole time I'm like, this is very precarious. Well, let me just read you the intro of this story that I saw get like shared over and over again. Like a bunch of people were like, oh my God, this is so great. I finally get it now. And I was like, really? If you've never experienced a fire season before, it's hard to explain the emotional, physical, and sensory effects of having the world immolate before your eyes. I spent decades with only a passing knowledge of wildfires. I'd read about smoke jumpers and fire seasons, sure. I'd seen the news videos of planes and helicopters dumping water on burning hillsides. I have distinct memories of images of the California countryside at night with a raging fire threatening a neighborhood development and reports of evacuations and deaths. It seemed awful and cruel and arbitrary, but also like something happening in a distant part of the world. I empathized, but I didn't understand. Then I moved west. And it goes on from there. But um, actually, the one thing that I think is is kind of dangerous about this kind of general lack of understanding of, of fire in a lot of newsrooms is, um, is, is kind of like what you were talking about, Drew, that like you were like, yeah, I didn't realize about the smoke and fire is complicated. And I feel like what we're seeing now is a rash of these kind of climate denial dudes being like, oh no, you guys are misunderstanding. It's all about forest management, Mm. which is really easy to spread because a lot of people don't know enough to push back on that and say, yeah, it's for, it's forest management and climate change and bad development policies, you know, like those things can mm. all be a problem together. <laughs> you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. Like I'd say like, yeah, I would say like it can definitely like contribute to this issue of oversimplification and flattening a problem. Yes. Yeah, I think it's very weird to see this forest management thing turn into a climate denial um, cudgel yeah. because it yeah. was like it was like so weird. just yeah. like two years ago, like land management and controlled burns was like kind of at the edge of EJ or something. You know, it was like it was like, yeah, it was like it was like things that like people only people like in EJ circles talked about really and like really maybe even like indigenous folks, you know, and yeah. like people who are also other people who are concerned with land management, but like, and so now it's like a mainstream topic of discussion, like controlled burns and also is being used mm-hmm. as this like cudgel for climate deniers. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is really, yeah. really, really weird. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. so, but I think mm-hmm. like, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with Charlie. I didn't get it. <laughs> but but i mean that's all right that's the thing is like that's well see that's the thing is like they could also and i'm sure they probably the new york times is such a huge operation i'm sure that they've like had people talking about this fire season who haven't just moved to the west and been here for a while but yeah i i mean you know this Mm -hmm. this framing of it I mean, I think, I think this framing is actually like very, um, it's like, it's like kind of a classic journalism framing where it's like, you, you want to try to put the reader, you want to put yourself in the reader's shoes and then put the reader in your shoes, you know, like where it's like, I didn't know about this thing that you also didn't know about. And now we're both learning about it together. Aha. Like it's sort Mm -hmm. of the, I think the framing. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 But I also... 
you know, have my gripes with East Coast media bias as a Mississippian because, mm-hmm. like, yes. um, I mean, Hurricane Laura just straight up devastated Louisiana and Texas. Yeah. Um, and Hurricane Sally did the same thing. And you heard very little about either one of them, really. Yes. Um, I yeah. mean, we heard about Laura as, like, this meteorological marvel as before she made landfall. But then, you know, the aftermath really hasn't been talked about that much. Um, and same thing with Sally, but even worse, because I think Sally was like little, not, well, she was big, but she was not very strong um, before she made landfall. And then she like rapidly intensified. Um, my friend, Anna Jane Joyner, lives down there and had to evacuate in the middle of the night because she intensified so fast mm-hmm. that nobody knew to evacuate. Mm-hmm. And I have heard, I have been searching for stories about what that looked like, how it happened. And I've just been like not been able to find very much about it. It's really like scary that that's just let go mm-hmm. of. And I, I'm used to this, right? Like my mama still lives down there and a lot of my family lives in Birmingham and like their weather is not my news, but mm-hmm. my weather is their news. Mm-hmm. Um, right. right. So like, yeah. I don't always know what's happening to them, which, you know, I know I should call my mama more often. Shut up. <laughs> I mean, I think like with like I, I think yeah, you should call your mom more, Mary, and also yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I think yeah, you end up finding like this happens to me a lot too. Like when I'm reporting and stuff, like especially stuff that happened a while ago. Like when I was reporting on like um, climate resiliency in the the wake of Hurricane Katrina and Harvey, I, there was stuff mm-hmm. about Katrina, even like. Things even about New Orleans, which was the, the biggest city that was reported on, you know, the, the, where the, most of the focus was, there were things mm-hmm. missing. There were things that had to dig, 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 like facts about, you know, just like simple facts in terms of verifying them that mm-hmm. you would have to dig to find like the like the hard copy of something that would prove something. Not like a print copy, but like just a hard digital copy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and like a PDF or something. And then like yeah, so I feel that like it's like it's like wait 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 what happened between this date and this date? Yeah, mm-hmm. that led to mm-hmm. the that led to the the latter date hap- you know being the outcome, and then you have to mm-hmm. dig because there there were there weren't a lot of local news sources even then to report on that mm-hmm. stuff. The other thing um, I think about um, the story just came out today in the L.A. Times where they basically um, <laughs> read themselves for filth. Um, where they, <laughs> you know, uh, like, if you don't know what that phrase means, it basically means like they told on themselves um, about their really shitty history with reporting on race um, and being incredibly biased toward police. Um, and it's just like a really comprehensive accounting of all the times they fucked up, apologizing for it and talking about what they're going to do differently in the future. I, I've only, it came out today. I've read half of it. It's really, I think so far, very good. And <laughs> Amy, what was your first reaction to that? I can't imagine the New York Times ever doing this. Like, <laughs> ever. I That's mean, literally what you texted me back when I <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I wonder what that says about like, the West Coast versus the the East Coast, because I I associate police brutality a lot, um, or at least the conversation about police brutality with the West Coast because of Ronnie King the, and like, Ronnie, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And NWA and Ice T, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think of like, and the Black Panthers, right? Like, they forced mm-hmm. this issue into people's psyche, um, the Black community in the West Coast, I should say, because people weren't talking about it. And as much mm-hmm. as like the, the LA Times and the media out there would be like, no, that's not true. It's gangs, it's violence in these communities. They're like, no, they legit drove a tank through my front fucking door. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, the videotaping of the Rodney King beating. That, um, yeah. 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 You can draw like some really strong through lines to the videos of police brutality that are coming out now because like yeah. before Rodney King, people were like, yeah, I don't believe you. Right. Um, and then that was the first, the like, yeah, viral video mm-hmm. of police brutality. I mean, it's sad that that was what like more than 20 years ago and we're still seeing these fucking videos all the time. But um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it, it brings back to mind a piece that you wrote a little while ago, mm-hmm. Drew, um, that we've talked about on this show before, but just like you talked about why defunding the police is an environmental justice issue. And you brought up something that I didn't see anybody else talking about, which was the type of pollution that police generate. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so I, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder what, how did you think of that angle? Uh, I thought of that angle because environmental justice activists have been talking about abolishing the police or police reform, you know, as part of, as part of environmental, um, policy in, you know, so I, I, I have to like completely think like elders in that, in that movement mm-hmm. for that. Um, and, in people who are like younger folks too, who are in that, who are in the environmental justice movement, because really they, they're the ones that when I would, you know, my understanding of, of, of the, of environmental justice was, was still very like mainstream and thinking about like environmental impacts of like pollution or climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of these organizations, even like, you know, we think about like climate justice organizations like Sunrise Movement talk about abolishing the police and, you know, and, and maybe that's more so since June. But mm-hmm. um, since the uprisings, but um, I think so. Yeah. But but I still think that there are other EJ like more EJ community like um, organizations like We Act in New York and stuff like that, and other or- environmental justice and in, 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 in the Asian Pacific Environmental Network and communities mm-hmm. for better environment out here, and you know have been talking about police reform at least, or you know, or prison reform at least as part of. Um, environmental justice, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and so uh, so that's where the framing came from. And so I, I was just thinking yeah. about it, and I was like, well. And then I was thinking about the parts of environmental justice that concern themselves with the built environment, and like so, like human creations that are part of our environment that we have to think about. Like when we think about. Um, uh, heat islands, you know, we think about the, all the concrete that humans have put on the ground that have created these conditions, right? And so, mm-hmm. and so then I'm thinking, okay, well, humans also thought about putting police presence in, or really putting police in certain communities and not others, right? And they create, they create part of the environment by being there. Um, you know, like some, some people walk out of their house and they see a cop car and others don't. And that means something, you know, like right. it's yeah, that simple. Right, Just like some people walk out of their house and they inhale pollution, they inhale air pollution and others don't. 
right mm-hmm. um and so that's that was sort of how it grew out and then and then i just i've lived in communities with high police presence before and i was just thinking about the different types of um of pollution of like of like what's a little bit more traditional pollution that they create that yeah. we would consider traditional pollution and then i have to shout out my instructor from the berkeley j school james fawn who mm-hmm. whenever so yeah whenever he gives a spiel about the different types of pollution he always calls out noise pollution at the end and no one can no one realizes he says he says he says and there's this other type of pollution that nobody ever considers and i want you to try to guess what it is i'm just going to be silent and then he's just silent he's like and then no one gets it. He's like noise pollution. He's like because it's silent. <laughs> like, and he's like we're because we're especially because because Ber- the journalism school is like in like the more like affluent part of Berkeley, um, on the campus, and um, and so it's, it's quieter there. And so so I was thinking about like noise pollution that's created in in like I hear I, I where I live like near downtown Oakland. There's lots of like there's like still lots of like sirens and cop cars and stuff like that. Um, and then I've lived in DC in like crack districts where they would have floodlights on my street. Like, so in huge floodlights, um, literally lighting up the whole block to where you think that you don't know what type of, like you could wake up and look outside your window and not realize that it's like still the evening because it's so bright on your block um right yeah and i'm just thinking about those things you know and so i just Mm -hmm. yeah so that so that's sort of how those parts of the of the article made it in um but just thinking Mm -hmm. about the police police presence as part of the built environment and Mm -hmm. and its impact on communities of color yeah 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 Yeah. Yeah. i mean i don't know if we've mentioned this throughout the episode but i actually think it's pretty important like you are a man of color yeah, I'm black. Um, I'm a black dude. Right, I'm a black right. Dude. You're, he's I'm a black, black dude. dude. First, yeah. <laughs> and it's important to, like, the black gaze is important for these types for sure. of stories. Like, you're going to see things. You're going to think about things that aren't there. Like, like, you know, no secret that I'm also black. And, like, that informs the way that I think about things. Mm-hmm. Like, the sorts of perspective that I bring to it. Like, mm-hmm. Amy is, is Mexican, and she thinks about that sort of thing, too. So And like, white. Don't yeah, forget... She, I've got a Karen mom. I'm just kidding. Yeah, that explains the fucking mayonnaise. I know, I know, wow. I know. <laughs> I also, I also have, I also have white ancestors. I have white ancestors and too. How did you not They're... get the mayonnaise gene? <laughs> I have self-respect. <laughs> So, five guys walked into a Burger King. They were in and out. Oh. <laughs> wow. That was good. Wait a That was good. Good to bring us back to dad jokes. That's good. True, ain't it? I, it really was a treat to have you on the show. Yes, really, thank like, you, I could yeah, we could talk to you forever and ever. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, fun. This is awesome. Yeah. Thank you awesome. for having me. All 
right. Thank you so much to Drew Costley for joining us on the show today. You can and should follow him on Twitter at Drew Costley. And that last name is C-O-S-T-L-E-Y. And follow his reporting over at 1-0 on Medium. Yep. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Real Hot Take. I am at Mary Hegler and Amy is at Amy Westervelt. And like we said earlier, you should subscribe to our newsletter. We're doing great stuff over there. Everything from movie reviews to original reporting to climate grief essays and previews of essays that we're publishing elsewhere. Exactly. Um, today, Amy went on a fantastic rant about the absence of leadership from California's legislators in Washington that was just unparalleled (laughs) and you know gotten a few jabs at editors who made her take climate change out of her wildfire stories from as recently (laughs) as 2017 yes isn't that crazy crazy. yeah Yeah. so you know we're talking about a lot of stuff over there we've got feelings we've got thoughts so definitely make sure that you subscribe Yep, and we've got a premium version with all of the features for as little as $7 a month or $80 a year. Or if you really love us and you really want one of our amazing t-shirts, sign up as a founding member. That's $210 and worth every penny. Right, but we understand if you can't do that right now and we firmly believe that climate is a story of our time and it shouldn't live behind a paywall. So we produce a free newsletter too. It has a roundup of weekly coverage and a free feature from us and teasers for all the stuff in the premium newsletter. And just to talk about what we mean by this digest. So this idea kind of came out of my frustration and Amy's frustration with like the lack of climate verticals on any of the major news sites. So like if I wanted to see what Vox was saying about climate, I really had to dig into their masthead and it's just like a lot of work. Um, And then you have these aggregators like Apple News and Google News that their climate section is just really puny. Um, And it was like, so if I wanted to like take the plunge and really get into climate, I don't really know how to do it. And so like for me, even as somebody who's plugged into this, I was having to keep up with climate stories through Twitter. And folks don't want to be on Twitter all the time. So if you want to keep up with the climate story, this is really what we created this for. Every single week we have a roundup and it's long of all the greatest climate Mm -hmm. stories of that week. Yes. And I think the fact that we pull from lots of different outlets is a big bonus Mm -hmm. to this because my my issue also is that like no one was aggregating it and curating exactly so like exactly i had to go and do that and now we're doing that for you exactly (laughs) um yes we've also got merchandise in our store now we've got hats mugs all types of great stuff you should definitely go and buy it and send us a picture of yourself wearing it That's right. We love to see that stuff. Okay, that's it for this episode. If you've got questions about the general theme of the episode or questions for Drew or us, send those to hottakes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes, plural. And make sure to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Like, no joke, that really does help us find new listeners. Um, I've seen Mm -hmm. more and more people sending them in and thank you so much for that. If you haven't, just go ahead and do that. Um, And if you have a negative review, um, we have a system for that. You can send it to brian.con at earther.com. That's brian, B-R-I-A-N dot K-A-H-N at earther.com. He will read it. We need to check in with Brian and see if he's gotten any hate mail on our behalf. He has. He has, yeah. (laughs) All right, that's it. We'll talk to you soon.